good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. We're going to finish up 2 Peter this morning. We've come through 1 Peter, we made it almost through 2 Peter, and we're going to wrap it up here this morning. Starting in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, where we left off last week, he writes, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. So there, Peter is wrapping up his epistle. This second epistle that he wrote is talking about the the heresies, the false teachers that come from within the church that try to disrupt it and lead new believers astray. So in light of all of that that he said about false teachers, false doctrines, he's coming to this point. And remember just last week he was talking about the judgment that will come on these false teachers and the false Christians that follow them. Um, It is in motion already, he says. The judgment is swiftly approaching. Now, he says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Now, he says here the day of the Lord. Uh, This word for day can mean a literal 24-hour period, or it can mean a length of time, a period. Okay, And in this context, we can understand day to mean a period of time. So this day of the Lord begins when God takes back the reins. He supernaturally imposes his will on humankind. We saw the example of the flood earlier in 2 Peter. He, Peter uses the flood as an example of the judgment that God has made on the world. He says, You've seen it happen before. God flooded the earth with water, and next time you'll see it again with fire. And that's what we're talking about here. So when God supernaturally imposes his will on the world once again, it's going to be in the form of taking his church back to him. And it's what we know as the rapture. And that is the beginning of this period, the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord will continue through the tribulation period, which we know um, comes after the rapture, and then through the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. 
So that is what I understand to be the day of the Lord from the rapture through the millennium. And that's what we're talking about here. It says that this day, the rapture of the church will come as a thief in the night. So the first event in the day of the Lord, the rapture is coming when no one expects it. Okay, And there's plenty of scripture to, to back this up. Uh, many scriptures talk about this thief in the night analogy. Jesus even used it as well in Luke 12, 39. He said, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It's a, it's a warning, you know, be watchful, be looking for the return of Christ. Paul even uses the same language in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, and 3. He says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, and as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. So he says here, uh, this is Paul still, For when they say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. When the rest of the world is feeling safe and set in their ways, that is when God is going to impose his will. That is when he's going to take the church out of it. Um, And of course, they, in this passage in 1 Thessalonians, is talking about the unbelievers, those who are still living in the world. Then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. He says, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. We're back in 2 Peter. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. The elements will melt with fervent heat. This word elements is in the original Greek stoichion. Have any of y'all done stoichiometry in school? probably in chemistry class. It is literally just looking at these reactions and balancing the elements in both sides of the reactions. So you have your reactants and your products. And the law of conservation of mass says that you can't be different there. They have to be the same. You can't lose mass or gain it. Uh, Stoichiometry is literally dealing with elements and the balancing of the elements. Uh, Interesting to me that the word translated elements in our Bible is the same root word that we get the word stoichiometry from. He says, they will melt, these elements will melt with fervent heat. And the word melt means literally to loosen, to loosen. That's interesting when we consider that Colossians 1.17 tells us that he speaking of Christ, is before all things, and in him all things consist or cohere. It means he's holding everything together. And if he's holding everything together, he has the power to let it loose. And that's what Peter is talking about here. He says that there will come a time when things will not continue as they have been, as the scoffers say that they do, but God will 
loosen his grasp on the elements, and it will incinerate everything that we know as the earth. And that is literally what he's saying here. In which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Now, the earth won't always be our home, and that is our hope as Christians. And hope not in the way that the world uses the word hope, but it is our earnest expectation. We know that this is coming, and it should inform how we live. And we'll talk about that again towards the end of this chapter. But there will come a time when God will judge the earth with this fire that we're talking about. And not only the physical earth, but it says the works that are in it will be burned up. How do you burn up works? I don't really know, but I have faith that God can do it. Um, And really what this is, is a refining fire. It's burning away the chaff, everything that is not Christ-centered. The works that we do for Christ, we will receive reward for. And we will get those crowns, those rewards, and throw them back at his feet. Because it's only by him that we even get to the Father anyways. So what do we do with all this reward? We give it back to him. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. The things that you do selfishly are not for Christ. That is worth nothing. It will be burned up in the end um, and counted as loss. Verse 11 says, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, and again, we have that same word for melt from verse 10. He says dissolve this time. So it's translated a little bit differently. means the same thing. It's to loosen. Therefore, since all these things will be loosened, dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So in light of the fact that everything is passing away, how should that inform our lives as Christians? Well, simply put, um, and as John said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. The world is presently in the process of passing away. And the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. That's, that's very cut and dry for us. Um, that is how we should live. Not according to the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. Those things in the world. But set your mind on things above. The things that we know are going to happen and we await with fervent, um, with earnest expectation. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? The prophecy of the second coming of Christ is not for our speculation. There's a lot of books written about it. You can read all you want and you can speculate about it, but if it doesn't inform how you live, what good is it? We need to be taking the grace with the knowledge. Okay, and Peter wraps up his second epistle with a very profound verse, and it summarizes 
very well what he talks about in each one of his epistles. And we'll look at that as well. But if we are just learning and we don't have the grace, you become heady. And nobody likes that guy that knows everything but doesn't have love. See, if we do have the grace but we don't know anything about Jesus, where does that get us? So we have to balance these things, the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. This verse, um, verse 11, the second part of it can be read like this. What foreign kind of people should you be in conduct and godliness? If you believe that this world and the works that are in it are going to be burnt up, you should look like a foreigner to the rest of the world. You should not imitate them. We imitate Christ, who is not of the world. We should be an ambassador to the world and not be caught up in it. It's like a ship sailing on the sea. It's beautiful to see that ship floating out there in the open ocean. It's terrifying when you see the sea in the ship. So the ship in the sea is fine. And that's, that's all of us as believers. We are ships in the sea of a crooked and perverse generation. But when that sea gets in the ship, that's when we've got issues. Verse 12, Peter continues to write, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Now this is interesting. Okay, and we're going to go into a bit of a rabbit trail here, but I'll pull you back out of it. So he says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Romans 8 tells us that even the creation has this earnest expectation to be set free from the bondage of decay. And we do as well. We should have that earnest expectation to be set free from sin, from the decay that is in our bones, literally. This bondage to corruption can be called entropy. If you're not a a science guy or thermodynamics guy, I'll explain what entropy is. It is simply disorder. It's chaos. And as time goes on, entropy increases. Disorder increases. Things don't get more ordered as time passes. This is the second law of thermodynamics. Entropy increases as time goes on. Very simply put. And it's interesting that all of these science guys claim evolution to have created everything that we see. When their own laws of thermodynamics say that you can't get order out of chaos, you only get chaos out of order. It's backwards. And they seem to ignore this whole idea of entropy when promoting this idea of evolution. Anyways, um, since... God subjected the world to this bondage of decay. And I believe that it was subjected after Adam fell. 
after humankind fell into temptation and um, sin came into the world, I believe that's when entropy entered the world too. And the world was condemned to suffer this decay. But the creation is eagerly awaiting, and Romans 8 says it's eagerly awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. We are sons of God by the new creation that he has made us. And even creation is eagerly awaiting that moment that we are set free from our mortal bodies and will forever reign with Christ. If creation is eagerly awaiting that, how much more should we eagerly await our own freedom? Really? So looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. God's people shouldn't get caught with their pants down when the rapture happens. And I use that figuratively, but you know somebody's bound to be on the toilet when they get caught up, and then literally they will get caught with their pants down. But in all seriousness, this verse can tend to be a contentious topic among Greek scholars. Okay, And there are qualified Greek scholars on both sides of this argument I'm going to share with you. The scripture says in verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. The big question here is, do we as believers have an effect on when Christ comes back? Okay, there's two ways to look at this. The first, you can read this as looking for and eagerly awaiting the coming of Christ. The word that is translated hastening in the New King James Version can also mean eagerly awaiting. The other meaning is what is translated here in my version, hastening. Literally could be read as looking for and speeding up the coming of Christ. So do we have an effect on when Christ comes back? The language literally allows for both interpretations And like I said, these scholars are split right down the middle on this. There are good arguments for both, and I don't know which one is correct. There is one that's correct, but I don't know which one that is. So I'll let you study it, and you come up with the correct interpretation. Uh, And let me know what you find. I'm interested in it. But do we, by prayer and evangelism, hasten, literally speed up, the day that the Lord comes? Now, it's easy to get caught up on either extreme here, okay? We don't want to do that. We want to remain somewhere in the middle, and that's where I've fallen personally. But on one extreme, you have those who will say, God is so sovereign, and he is, he is sovereign, that he has everything under control, and there's no sense in even evangelizing. That doesn't make much sense. In fact, we were literally commanded by Christ to preach the gospel, Mark 16, 15, Jesus says, go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Very plainly. That doesn't even need me explaining anything. Just literally go and preach the gospel. So we don't want to get caught on that extreme. But on the other extreme, you have those that take themselves too seriously and think, well, God can't do anything without my help. You know, I'm just the bee's knees doing God's work all over town. 
And that is another extreme that we don't want to find ourselves getting caught up in. Um, I am up here simply by the grace of God. It's nothing really that I've done except make myself available for him to work. Um, And I do believe that if God wants this church to prosper and he wants y'all to be here on Sundays, if I wasn't willing, he'd have somebody else up here that was willing. So I certainly don't want to fall into that uh, crevice where I think that I am just all that in a bag of chips. You know, God will get his will done regardless. And he doesn't need me to do it. But I want to be a part of that. And I pray that you want to be a part of his will too. And that you make yourself available for him. Um, If I have to preach seven services every Sunday because we have that many people in this small little room, I will do that. I'm willing to do that. But are y'all, I know you like this small church. I do too. I came and there's probably 40 to 50 people in this church. Um, and that's, that's everybody, not, not just on one Sunday. And I loved it. And I stayed here and I learned and I grew here. But if God wants us to grow as a church, I'm willing to do that. And if that is to take place, we need everyone on board with that. And scripture says that God is waiting for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in before he comes back and takes us home. And if the last one can be saved here, man, that would be cool. So don't get distracted on either side of this argument. Um, It's easy to do, but we need to kind of remain centered on this. As I asked God to speak to my heart this week concerning this passage, um, I basically resorted back to this. If I live submitted to his will, that means that I evangelize. And if I evangelize and the fullness of the Gentiles is brought in faster, I'm good with that. I'm thrilled with that. But if I'm supposed to live with an earnest expectation of his coming, and it doesn't speed anything up, but I'm just trying to grab as many people as I can before we get out of here, I'm good with that. right? So it doesn't change how we are to live. We are still to evangelize, to bring everyone in that we can, um, and leave the rest up to him. So either interpretation you take, uh, Jesus is coming back soon. So I tend to leave the arguing to the scholars, and I'll focus on preaching the gospel. Verse 13, he says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And we do look forward to these things. This is what gives us the hope that we have. And it's great news. We don't have to hang out on this ball of dirt forever. We will be leaving. And this is exciting. It says, according to his promise. We see God's promise in Isaiah 65, 16. One of God's promises. The one that pertains to this. He says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. 
So even way back in the Old Testament, God is talking about this day of the Lord when he comes back to judge and then sets up Christ as a ruler and us as co-heirs with Christ. That's exciting. I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. I wouldn't mind forgetting everything that has happened in this world. I don't know about y'all. That sounds pretty good to me. In Revelation 21.1, John writes, now I, say, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Again, talking about this new creation. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Righteousness will dwell there. A couple verses later in Revelation 21, where we were just reading, after seeing a vision of this new creation, John hears a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Sounds pretty good. I wouldn't mind being there. Wouldn't mind being there right now. But for now, we will wait with this earnest expectation until the sons of God are brought into his presence. Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot, and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Back in 14, he says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things. Be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. Now, this blessed assurance helps us to keep clean and to remain faithful to do our work until Jesus comes back. And our expectancy of his coming should inform how we live, like we talked about briefly. How many of you are parents? Got parents? Almost everyone. And if you're not a parent, you have parents. So this applies. A mother, before she gives birth, will go into what's called nesting mode. She's expecting this baby to get here. So what does she do? She starts preparing for it. She goes into the house, starts cleaning everything, scrubbing like the little light bulbs, you know, making sure everything is nice and squeaky clean for the baby. She's expecting the coming of the baby, and that informs how she lives. So in the same way, Christ's imminent coming should inform how we live, and it should prompt us to clean house. If something is not honoring God in your life, this should be a prod to clean that up. You know, and we all have those things. We are not 
Christ, we are not living a perfect life. We are striving towards that. And in that, we can clean house in some things. Okay, so don't ignore that twinge to shove something out of your life. Literally shove it out if it is not honoring Christ. Don't ignore that feeling this week. But we're expecting Christ to come at a moment we least expect, and we should be compelled to clean our own lives. Just get rid of the things that don't honor him. This is how the word of God is effectual for our daily living. And end times. People dismiss the end times as just speculation like we were talking about earlier. Oh, you can read about it. You can know all you want about it, but it doesn't really matter. It does matter. Because it simply informs how we live our day-to-day lives. It's effectual for that. Without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. His will, God's will, is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That word repentance is metanoia, to change one's mind. That's the only time that... Peter uses the word metanoia in 2 Peter. That's the only time he speaks of repentance. And it's in the context of the long-suffering of Christ. So the long-suffering of Christ is our salvation. I'm thankful that Christ did not come back before I was saved. I'm thankful for that fact. And the longer he waits... The longer he suffers, the more he brings into the sheepfold. The more and more people come to know him, the longer he waits. But there will be a time when he cannot push back that judgment any longer. And that is when things will start moving. And you'll see things wrapping up. God is simply using time to serve his grace. And I said that last week. I think it's very apt. God is using time to serve his grace. In Romans 2, 3 through 4, Paul wrote the same thing as Peter is saying here. Paul says, And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So again, we have the long-suffering of God, repentance, and salvation, all tied together. In verse 16, continuing in the sentence started in verse 15, he says, As also in all his epistles, speaking in them, of these things in which are some things hard to understand. Now, Peter has some guts to say that Paul is hard to understand. Because there are some things that Peter writes that we are like, what in the world is going on here? Uh, So I I think that's actually kind of funny that he says that. Uh, But he's not wrong. I mean, Paul is kind of wordy, hard to understand sometimes. Uh, But Peter can get confusing too. As they do also the rest of the scriptures down at the end of the verse. That's very interesting, isn't it? 
he lumps Paul's epistle in with, quote-unquote, the rest of the scriptures. That means that Peter had already recognized Paul's writings as inspired. Very interesting. So it was not a council hundreds of years after Christ that decided what our canon of scripture would be. But the inspired word was recognized as such when it was written. Very interesting. And that will come in handy. That knowledge will come in handy to you if you get in certain tussles with some people. Um, That is good information to have. So stash that back in your mind. Um, The inspired scripture was recognized as inspired scripture when it was written. Which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Now this word twist can mean to torture or to stretch. Have you seen that medieval torture device where they strap you in and they crank it and it slowly stretches out your body until eventually you rip apart and die? That's what this is saying. You're stretching, you're torturing the scripture so that you can make it say whatever you want it to say. Because if I'm being stretched like that, I will say whatever you want me to say to make that stop, you know, within reason. <laughs> that torturing of the scripture leads it to confess things that it, it does not mean, okay? And this is a very interesting example um, in this context where Peter was previously talking about these false teachers, He says that they speak great and swelling words. Empty. Like cotton candy in your mouth dissolves instantly. It's not satisfying. It does no good to you except to taste good. That is the words that they speak. And they use scripture, quote unquote scripture, to back up their points. But they take it out of context. They twist the meanings of the words. They they simply stretch it to fit whatever they're trying to tell you. And that is, that's what they do. They twist it to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. It's the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis is pulling meaning out of the passage. Eisegesis is reading meaning into the passage. And eisegesis is very, very dangerous because you do get these things that lead to destruction. You get these false teachings in the church. Verse 17, he wraps up by saying, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. So verse 17, he says, Beloved, beware. Guard yourself so that you remain steadfast. Since you know this beforehand. This phrase, since you know this beforehand, is one word in Greek. It's prognosko. Pro, meaning before. Gnosko, meaning knowledge. Since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness. This word prognosco sounds a lot like prognosis. 
And if you're in the medical profession or you've had people go into the hospital, you, you would ask the doctors for the prognosis. So the diagnosis is what's wrong with you. The prognosis is what's happening after that. It's a foreknowledge of what is to come. Prognosco, prognosis. And we know because Peter has written to us very plainly the prognosis of the world. We know what's going to happen to the world. It's going to be burned up and all the works therein. That is the prognosis. Peter just spells it out for us so nicely. And since we know that, we must beware lest we fall from steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Now, Peter isn't talking about a believer falling from salvation here. He's talking about a believer falling from steadfastness. And I think it's worth mentioning that Peter himself fell from steadfastness. He denied Christ three times. In fact, Jesus said to Peter when he was predicting Peter's denial of himself, he said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. And then Peter goes on to say, Lord, I am, I am the apostle. I'm not a B apostle like these other guys. I am going to stick with you. And there is nothing going to take me away from you. Not even death. He's so confident in himself. And then Jesus predicts that before the rooster crows in the morning, he will have denied him three times. And that is exactly what happened. Peter fell from his own steadfastness. So now, I'm sure very fresh on his mind, this example of himself, he exhorts believers to beware, lest you follow in my footsteps. He doesn't want that to happen. Beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is in contrast to the idea in verse 17. Don't fall from your own steadfastness, being led away, but instead grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is how you remain steadfast. Grow in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ. And this is the wrap-up verse that I was referring to earlier. I said that it summarizes his first and second epistles very well. In 1 Peter, he talks all about the grace of God. And he uses the word grace, charis, in the Greek many, many times. And he emphasizes that, that grace. In his second epistle here, he emphasizes the knowledge because the knowledge is what will guard you from the false teachings. Because if you know the correct thing, you can automatically spot the incorrect thing. And I've, I've used this example before, and I'm going to use it again, the counterfeit bills. If you are training someone to recognize a counterfeit bill, you don't ask them to study a bunch of counterfeit bills. You ask them to study and memorize what a real bill looks like. You study what is true, and you will recognize what is untrue. 
grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wrapping everything up here. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Let's close our study this morning with a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed.